Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hacked Off. I have a special guest with me today. Brian's here in the studio. Um, Brian, why don't you introduce yourself and, and what you're currently working on? Thanks very much. Yeah, my name is Brian Higgins. I work at the University of Manchester and I'm currently project managing a European Regional Development Fund programme um, that's designed to help um, encourage small businesses in the greater Manchester area to leverage cybersecurity and grow their businesses in a nutshell. That's an interesting way of putting it, leveraging cybersecurity. I think a lot of people think of security as like a cost, right? There's no benefit to it. So how do you how do you get that message across to people? Um, by sitting down and talking to them for a very long time. Um, <laughs> you're absolutely right, though. Um, we, we think we're a unique project. So it's actually a four-hander. There's four universities working together, which in and of itself is quite unique. So myself for the University of Manchester, we have Lancaster University, Salford University and Manchester Metropolitan all four of us um, have an equal part in, in delivering the project. Um, and again, the uniqueness of it is that most people think um, cybersecurity, A, is a cost and a barrier, not an enabler, which mm-hmm. is a shame, because it can be if you do it right. Um, but also cybersecurity is about protecting your networks and your assets and your business. But actually, it's a lot more than that. And if you go about it the right way, you can leverage cybersecurity to improve your business, to grow your business, to make sure that whatever you bring to market is a bit more secure by design rather than just having a really great idea, plugging it into the internet and then getting hacked every 10 minutes, which is what happens quite a lot. Yeah, I think certainly for um, small businesses, right, startups, SMEs, things like that, where they're um, maybe thinking of security a little bit later than they should be, it's not a first step. Absolutely. I had to learn quite early on from engaging with the business owners that um from a security specialist point of view like mine, naively, I think it should be right there from the beginning, but actually it isn't. It's a stage or two into your creative process if you're designing a product product or a service. The creative bit comes first, but the security bit needs to come fairly quickly afterwards, not later down the line. Um, and so security by design is uh, is underpins our project. So when we're dealing with the businesses... We um, are always looking to recruit small, medium-sized businesses in the greater Manchester area because that's where our funding is focused. Um, We give them business assistance as part of the programme, but then whilst we're doing that, we're looking for candidates who might have something in their business like an app or some hardware or even a, a client management system, something new that's innovative that we can help them make more secure help them develop a digital stereotype of that particular product or service and then say, right, off you go, take it to market, grow the economy of Greater Manchester in the digital estate, but do it as securely as you can with our help. That sounds great. How do you how do you actually do that then? Is that just, just meetings with them and just discussions of security or is it more involved? It's quite more involved. It's quite <laughs> complicated. I'll do my best to, to explain it. If you think about the Cyber Foundry project as a, mm-hmm. as a funnel, So at the top end of the funnel where it's wide open, our project goal is to contact and maintain contact with 600 SMEs over the course of the project. And it's a three-year long project, so it's got another two and a bit years to run. So over three years, we need to make contact with and stay in touch with 600 businesses. So what they will do is form the Cyber Foundry community, if you like. And so if we've got 
um, postgrad students or researchers doing work in the university on particular topics, we might ask permission from these 600 businesses to be contacted with a questionnaire or something mm-hmm. so they can help inform the research. So that's the kind of thing that the wider community can get involved with. And then from those 600, the funnel kind of gets thinner as you get down. So from the 600, we then have to recruit 150 over the course of the project who go on to the Cyber Foundry programme proper, which is a two-staged affair. So the first stage is business assistance delivered by the team at Lancaster University. They're a fantastic um, team of people up there. The business owners will come in cohorts of 15 or 20 at a time and they'll go to two day-long workshops. First day, bit of cybersecurity training from me in the morning just to benchmark them and let them know where we expect them to be maturity-wise to do the rest of the programme because we're not a cybersecurity training project by any means, but people think we are. But back to your earlier point about how do you explain yeah. something like leveraging cybersecurity to grow your business isn't something that's easily explainable, really. But we try our best. So they come to the workshops and then Lancaster Uni will deliver a business modelling um, workshops. They do scenario planning and they do all kinds of funky stuff. And we, the rest of the project management team are there to help facilitate. But Lancaster do the delivery of that stage because at the end of the two days... Not not two days together, they're split apart. Because mm-hmm. um, you can't expect a small business owner to come away for two days because they probably will have a business to go back yeah. to. It's quite a, um, you know, cutthroat market out there. Um, so at the end of those two workshops, the Lancaster team will come up with, based on the input, the data that we've gotten from the businesses in the workshops, it all goes into some iPads and it speaks to some software back at Lancaster and they come up with a portfolio of about seven reports on various different aspects of those individual businesses. Mm-hmm. So they're quite a lot of product and it's all fully funded. So the only um, resource that the business candidates need is their time. There's no cost to it. It's funded by European Regional Development Fund. Um, so they get all of these different reports from Lancaster and then they have a sit-down meeting with the team at Lancaster and they basically benchmark where that business is at, what kinds of next steps they should be thinking about. Perhaps it could be something... Slightly more basic, like you need to go off and do cyber essentials because that would make your business more sustainable and more resilient. But then you get to stage two of the programme proper, which is technical assistance. And that's where from those 150 businesses who've come to the workshops, the funnel gets even thinner at the bottom end because from there we need to recruit 60 over the course of the project who we have identified as having some kind of uh, something funky in their business, as we spoke before, like an app or some software or some hardware, that if we gave them a technical assistance team for, for three months, so they'll spend a day or two a week with the business for three months, they will go back and forth from our academic research team. So if we've got something, um, if someone's doing got an AI business going on and we've got a professor of machine learning there's probably something that professor can Mm. bring to help that business grow and make their products resilient and secure. So the technical team will back and forth between the academics and the business, but also spend time with the businesses individually to help them develop a digital stereotype of whatever it is they've got that we think could be securely designed and brought to market. 
And so that's basically us done cyber foundry wise at the end of those three months, technical assistance, those 60 businesses by the end of the project will have a digital stereotype of something that their business has developed and we will have helped them secure it as best as we can. And then it's for them to decide on their next steps or whether they want to take it to market, etc., and then grow the economy of Greater Manchester by doing so. In a nutshell. Yeah. <laughs> a very big nutshell. <laughs> like a Brazil nut. One of the one of the things or I always hear um, dealing with companies is um, that companies, in my experience, very often worry about not necessarily how secure are we, but it's like how secure are we in comparison to everyone else? Do you do you find working with these businesses that um, they're all about the same, they're all fairly security is a new thing, people don't know what they're doing, or or do you get quite a difference across across businesses between their maturity? Very different indeed. Um, because the nature of the Foundry project is accessible and inclusive. So we aren't just looking for tech firms. Mm-hmm. You could be a hairdresser. You could be selling oh, okay. beds. We have actually a company that sells <laughs> beds. Um, who, uh, yeah, have, anyone really has probably got something in their business that if we could digitize and bring to market, if we can make it secure. Um, but the levels of sort of maturity, which is why we try and address them early mm-hmm. on in the process, um, can be very different. You know, I have one business owner who is a sole trader, individual, one person, one laptop, and that's the entire business. But then you might have something slightly larger. So I think the ceiling for um, uh, the criteria to, to qualify as a small, medium-sized business is less than 250 star. Mm-hmm. So there's a big um, spectrum there of, of businesses size-wise even. And so therefore, um, you know, one sole trader, one laptop, that's an easy enough network to secure. Yeah. Unless, you know, her mate's got access to her emails via their iPhone, et cetera, and actually she's got a wider network than she thinks, but she hasn't considered the fact that everything is still connected to that one laptop and that then makes a network that needs to be secured. Um, yeah, yeah. But then you get a bigger company with, you know, 50, 100 staff, and then that means a bigger network. But just because your network's bigger doesn't mean you're better at security or worse because you might not know quite <laughs> what, what's going on. Yeah. You know, if you go and talk to somebody like, um, I don't know, Tesco's, for example, other supermarkets are available, and you ask them how many tins of baked beans they've got in every single supermarket across the planet, they'll tell you to within one immediately. Ask them how many devices are connected to their network and they'll just run away and hide. They have not got a clue. So, yeah, trying to get people into a level of maturity about security is like one of the first stages of of the Foundry project because if we can't get them up to that level, then they're not going to benefit from what we've got to offer. So in a way, that's a kind of peripheral benefit is that actually not all of these businesses are going to make it all the way through the Mm programme, but at least if they've come to the beginning, they're going to go away thinking, ah, I know more about security than I did before. And then hopefully tell their friends as well. Yeah, for those um, those really tiny businesses, I think in my experience, some of their challenges are just they have a lot of systems and they're, they're relying on a lot of free software and, and those kinds of things. And l- like you say, um, it can be complex. Even if you just got one laptop, it can be complex with you know what data is being shared where and those kinds of things. Absolutely. And um, d- even from, from very basic levels. So as I've been going out around um, Greater Manchester and finding my way around, and going to some really nice places to meet these business owners, 
I often find they'll be sitting in um, hotel um, cafes or, or wherever working on public Wi-Fi um, that's completely unprotected, but they're running a business. And then even something as basic sometimes as saying, well, have you not even considered a VPN? They don't know what one is. Yet they're running a commercial enterprise that actually is it pays for their life, you know, their home, their ch- their children, their mortgage. It needs to be protected. But um, lots of people don't even understand the very basics. And it's quite an easy trick to fall into when you do know the basics to, to assume that other people do. And to assume people know the words as well, right? It, that's so exactly said, right. So why aren't you using a VPN? And then what like, is a VPN? <laughs> yeah, that's ex- those are the conversations I'm starting to have with people. But at least we're having them. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, you know, doing um, podcasts like this, writing blogs, etc., getting the word out to, just to put these concepts into people's minds and say, okay, it's brilliant that you're running a business, that you're innovative, that you're entrepreneurial, that you're independent, but please consider the security elements of what you're trying to do because no one wants you to fail and no one wants you to be victim to, to an attack, even if it's ransomware or something basic. It's just, it will still kill your business because you're, you're, you're not a huge Tesco's or a BT or, a, or a, an IBM, so you're not as resilient as the huge players who can probably take it on the chin. If something happens to you, there are statistics about attacks on small businesses and how so many of them can't recover from a cyber attack because they just simply don't have the resilience or the resources. Is it uh, the kinds of things that you mentioned there, uh, what we might consider basics? Is it those kinds of things that businesses are worried about? So ransomware, for example? I think the ransomware is now uh, a definable thing in people's brains. They understand what it means because we have um, traditionally and since its inception in the cybersecurity community, given really simple things, really stupid names, (laughs) in order to maintain the mystique that we actually are quite clever and we know what we're doing and the rest of you don't need to know what we're doing because we're the experts. We want people to think we're cool. We do. And back in the day when cyber was like four blokes in a garage inventing Facebook or whatever, that was fine. But now cyber is ubiquitous. Everything's connected to the internet. Everything's digital. We've passed a tipping point now where if you build or manufacture something, it has to have connectivity embedded in it, whether it's a point of sale or somewhere in its life cycle, whether it's a pen, a phone, an office block, a wind farm, a water filtration plant, everything's going to get plugged into the internet at some point. What we are trying to do is get people to think about that at a much earlier stage than they do, i.e. 10 minutes after they've plugged it in and they've just lost all their bank details. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it, I think Manchester's a great place to start this kind of activity because it's a hotbed of digital um, entrepreneurial innovation, if you like. There's so much stuff going on here. I mean, I've only been here for six months, less than six months, and I'm fascinated by the kinds of people I've met and the ideas that they've had and the businesses they're building. And as I said before, no one wants them to fail. We want this to be a really successful area of the country. We want other regions to look at us and go, wow, they've just done that. Let's do it as well. So we're trying to build a blueprint for people to take on this foundry model, if you like, and do it elsewhere and build the resilience of the UK digital economy by step by step, if you like, starting at the bottom up rather than, you know, some 
ill-defined kind of <laughs> fluffy, flowery policy document that comes out of Westminster actually go and talk to real people in their office or in their cafe, tell them to get a VPN and then help them with their business. <laughs> I think that's funny, actually, how you... Um... We started, didn't we? Like, how can we make security seem like, uh, you know, uh, not a cost but a benefit? And then you just covered it there, of course. It's like, well, if you get hacked, your business might close. Absolutely. So <laughs> it's a benefit in that you can still tread. True. But there's also an enormous um, head-in-the-sand ethos about, mm. well, it's a bit like, um, uh, I don't know, insurance. You don't get insurance until your house gets burgled, and then you think, damn, I should have had insurance, and then you get it. So... There's a big mindset around the business community that, uh, oh, it won't happen to me. And, that, you know, a few years ago, that's probably the case because there wasn't such a proliferation of, of off-the-shelf cyber criminal attack mm. products. You know, you don't need to be an Uber hacker now to have someone's business over. You can buy something off the shelf like a banking Trojan for $75 and then just point and click and bang, you're off to the Bahamas and someone's lost their livelihood. So because it's such a ubiquitous issue now, because... Anyone can be subject to a successful attack. There was a lady from the television. She does a program called The Loose Women, I believe. <laughs> and she is a journalist and she has a radio show in Scotland. I don't know her name. But her hairdressers a few years ago in Glasgow were subject to a ransomware attack. It doesn't matter who you are. If you've got data and if you've got assets, then you're a target for cyber criminals. I, th I think this is the thing, certainly with ransomware, isn't it? The the whole business model, ironically referring to it as a business model, uh, for them is the number of infections, isn't it? So. Yeah, but you, you've hit another nail on the head there. So ransomware is a business model. It now runs a crime as a service. So the more sophisticated criminal operations will have, when you, your network is infiltrated and you have your data encrypted, you get a splash screen that says, right, we've got your data if you want it back, it's 600 quid in bitcoins. Here's how you get the bitcoins. Here's where you pay them. If you have any problems, call this number. Yeah. They have call centres out with jurisdictions where we could arrest them, clearly. In jurisdictions of risk, I think, is the phrase we use in law enforcement. They've got call centres for people, for their victims. You can ring them up and ask them for advice about how best to pay the ransom. And then, not only that... They have comment sections on their ransomware criminal website. So you can say, oh, yes, this criminal gang were lovely. They paid, they gave me my data back in 10 minutes. I'm really pleased with the service. <laughs> a la TripAdvisor. It's an, it's, it is a business. Yeah. They make an absolute fortune because it's so much easier. Like back in the day, I used to work in the National Cybercrime Unit. And okay. criminal um, money making was all based on carding. So st stolen bank details and credit card details traded on the dark net between gangs and then used uh, to monetize the stolen data. But that's actually quite hard work mm -hmm. because you've got to steal the credit card details. You've then got to go and use them to buy a telly on eBay, have it delivered to your mate somewhere else. He's got to then go and sell it to get the cash. Quite a long process to come from a stolen credit card. Is this a, a tutorial on how to do money laundering? Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. I'm going to start taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't endorse this activity under any circumstances, but yeah, basically that's how it used it's, to be done. It's hard though, right? Yeah, but there's so, several um, mm -hmm. steps to the process. You need gangs of people to um, to, to sell the to buy and sell the product, to, to launder the money, etc. 
it was quite hard work. And then suddenly ransomware came along and actually you don't need anything except a computer and a little bit of software, which you don't even have to write yourself because you can buy it from someone who's already written it. Mm -hmm. I think um, Sophos Labs do some statistics about uh, the numbers of new malware strains that pop up on the internet every day. And it's something like a quarter of a million on a daily basis. But there aren't a quarter of a million really clever coders out there writing malware. It's the same malware with a little bit of code tweak to make it do something a little bit different. I think one of the funny things that that we covered there is, I think hopefully, I definitely think it would be true, um, most businesses know what ransomware is, right? The BBC have been talking about ransomware. Most people know what that is. But we said earlier, people say, what's a VPN? So it, it shows awareness is working, right? If they now know what ransomware is and they didn't before, then awareness is helping. Yeah, but unfortunately, the reason they know what ransomware is is because there have been some very <laughs> high-profile, successful criminal attacks where they've made loads of money off ransomware. People don't know about it because they've we, as the specialists or, or those in authority, have taught them about it and tried to prevent it happening. It's a very much reactive bit of learning because it's already happened to them or to their neighbour or to the business down the street. And so that's why people understand what ransomware is. And it's unfortunately a shame that um, that's the case because you'd like to think as a mature Western civilization, we got it within our gift to train people to look out for it and not let it happen to them rather than it hits the newspapers because someone high profile has lost loads and loads of money. Um, so then everyone starts to think, oh, ransomware, maybe I should be worried about that. It's the wrong way round, unfortunately. Yeah, that's, that's quite a shame, isn't it? And I think very often when businesses, very small businesses come to us, the first question is like, okay, so security is important, but where do we start? Is that ransomware? Or <laughs> <Is that> like, <laughs> do you look at all of the breaches and see, see, see what... Well, again, uh, conversations like that... Um, come out of you know, a bit of awareness raising, but then oftentimes when you speak to uh, business owners especially, they will have read about something or heard about something or learnt about something independently and be worried about it and want to do something about it. But when they come and talk to people like yourselves or industry specialists for a bit of advice, mm -hmm. if you have a mature conversation, actually what, they've, what they need isn't what they thought they needed, if you get me. So they might come to you thinking, oh, I need um, a firewall and... Um, you know, some port scanning or something. Clearly, I'm very good at this. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, they don't. They probably need a bit of, um, you know, physical security training you know, and stuff because where they think they're vulnerable isn't necessarily where they are. Yeah. Unless they come to speak to some specialists who have a bit more of a good idea. And that's a shame because... Cybersecurity is so ubiquitous now. Everyone needs to be some kind of specialist, even if it's just a, a you know, a baseline bit of cybersecurity maturity. That's hard to say. <laughs> they all sound the same. But that's where we need to be as, as, as a country and as an economy. Everyone, because there's a criminological theory about displacement where criminals will try um, the easiest way. Because criminals are lazy and greedy, right? They don't want to do any hard yeah. work. That's why carding isn't as as clever as it is, was before because it's hard work and now everyone loves ransomware. The reason why they're criminals is because they're lazy and greedy. Um, but if you can put up even the basic defensive mechanism, so mm -hmm. if they come at you, your perimeter in an attack, and you've got a VPN or a firewall, 
they'll probably just go somewhere else who hasn't because it's easier. They won't unless there's a specific vendetta or 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 purpose for them attacking you specifically. Yeah. They're lazy and greedy. They won't carry on because they know that the rest of the internet's not protected. They'll just go somewhere where it's easier to make money. Yeah, I think that's so true. Certainly of of kind of malware attacks where militia software is very rarely interesting because it's always just the oh, was it like least effort to highest monetization, right? Why do we see much, so much ransomware? Because it works. Yeah, because it's easy. And actually, <laughs> yeah. if you're a clever um, cyber criminal, then the ones that are clever have now just got their feet up, letting everyone else do the work and mm. taking their cut. You know, back in the day, they might have written the code, but now everyone else is using it, but they still get their percentage. Um, but it is basically down to laziness and easiness. And ransomware, I'm sure there's probably more stuff to come in the future that's going to be even easier for them. But at the moment, as long as you're a clever criminal, and some of them are, even though they're lazy and greedy, and you are launching fairly large ransomware attacks across the globe, as long as you don't ask for too much money, then that's a sustainable business model too. Because once you're in someone's network, you leave the back door, you encrypt the data, take the 600 quid or whatever, decrypt the data, give it back to them, but then you pop back next month and do it again <laughs> because that's a, that's an affordable bit of money for someone to pay. They'd rather give you the money. It's a bit like the the, the new age equivalent of a 1920s mafia protection racket, you know, in New yeah. York, where they come around every week, take a few quid off you and not put your windows in. <laughs> Basically, that's ransomware these days. And uh, so... Some law enforcement agencies are getting a bit more clever about it now. And when they're called in, they back in the day, if uh, you called first responders, they would just whip your servers away and do forensic analysis. But then you've got no servers, so you're not doing business. So that made people less inclined to report these kinds of offences and just pay the ransom. Now the law enforcement are getting much better at dealing with these cases individually. And I know, for example, definitely Greater Manchester Police have a much more proactive policy on first responders dealing with um, digital crime. Um, so it's uh, you don't have to necessarily be scared about losing your service for two weeks if you report a digital crime these days, whereas five or ten years ago that would have been the case. Mm. I think that's that's probably a thing that some people worry about as well, thinking that because you have this mental image of the police, don't you? It's like the bobby on the street. And and some people might be thinking, well, if if we've been attacked and we call the police... Like, do they even know? You know, are they technically capable? But I think I think they are these days, aren't they? The police, the, the, they are keeping up with things. They're certainly more informed than your, your average kind of couple of people business. Absolutely. And that's out, born out of necessity because several years ago, I was listening to um, a senior police officer speak at a conference and he said back then that uh, we'd reached a tipping point where more than 50% of reported crime was digital. That was a few years back, so it must be a fairly big chunk of it now. Of course we need law enforcement personnel who are equipped to deal with it. And when you're talking about the small, medium-sized business community, 6 million of them in the UK, 90-odd percent of the economy relies on them, that's where the, the, the first responders, that's where the grassroots stuff needs to be happening. That's why we need first responders who've got the necessary skills and knowledge to be able to deal with crime in action on a, on a fairly individual and less sophisticated level because that's where the crime's happening. There's a big attack surface there, 6 million SMEs, yeah. who've all got data, who've all got assets, who are all targets for criminals. 
they tend to do it in sectors, you know, they'll go after hairdressers or they'll go after petrol stations or whatever, just because they'll find a threat vector that works. And then as soon as it's resilient and, and shored up, and then they'll move on to the next thing. But you're absolutely right that the law enforcement have come on leaps and bounds in the last few years. And most of the um, senior police management realise that in order to instil a bit of confidence in your victims, your first responders need to be able to speak with confidence about whatever crime it is they're called to deal with. And as we've mentioned, a lot more than half of that is now digital. So I think, I- um, I think that, that really shouldn't surprise anyone. I think it should almost surprise people that it took so long for digital crime to be more than 50%. <laughs> Because of exactly what you said earlier, criminals are lazy. <laughs> Very. So yeah, if you if you can do the crime over the internet, then of, of course that that would be a name for for criminals. I think people who run these, you know, we're using well, the, the hairdresser as the stereotype here, aren't we? It's like, <laughs> I know yeah, poor the... hairdressers. I don't mean to keep on using <laughs> them as an example, but it's because I remember that story about mm. the lady in Glasgow, and it it just it it reinforces in my mind the fact that any business. Mm-hmm. of any discipline is a target for criminals. Because it doesn't matter what you do, what you manufacture, what you produce, mm-hmm. what service you provide. You've got data. Data is now a tradable commodity mm-hmm. for cyber criminals. So they'll try and steal it or they'll try and encrypt it and get you to buy it back. Yeah, They don't need to rob banks anymore. I think people have uh, more electronic systems than they maybe think as well. So when you think of small businesses, take the, the hairdresser example, for example, it's... um. No, how are you booking appointments? Is that a, a paper diary or is that an electronic diary? Uh-huh. Says, or, may, or maybe a mobile phone. And it's like, how are you taking payments? Is that, um, you know, credit card, debit card, and, and that's getting sent over the internet? I think a lot of people, because computing is so ubiquitous, we just don't consider that. Carrying the on way. the um, hairdressing analogy, mm-hmm. um, there's a company called Pentest Partners mm-hmm. who you probably heard of. Mm. They've recently discovered some wirelessly enabled hair straighteners. Oh, of course. But, I did. Oh, yeah, of so course. now it's not just about, you know, your booking appointments, your um, cash or card payments, yeah. but actually the kit that you use in your hairdressing salon. You know, if, yeah. if you have a really successful hairdressing salon at one end of the street and then you've got a competitor at the other end who's not doing very well and they think, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll get into the wireless mm-hmm. connection for their hair straighteners and mm-hmm. I'll turn them up until they explode and burn their shop down. These things are doable. You can cause mm. actual physical harm by using the internet these days. Yeah, I think I think people immediately think, so when it comes to IoT devices, things like that, it's like, why on earth are hair straighteners internet connected? Because I leave <laughs> them on every day or I think I've left them on. And it's really good to be able to open an app and go, oh no, they're turned off or if they're not, to turn them off remotely. And people want these features. It's convenience. But it's absolute bobbins as well. So a f- friend of mine um, and I, we, we do a, a conference presentation mm-hmm. called The Internet of Death. <laughs> Tell me about we that. Can demonstrate that you can actually murder people with the internet. And there are documented stories about how it can be done. So uh, security specialists have proven that you there's a car wash in California that you could legitimately hack into the network of it and use it to murder someone inside the car wash, if you so wish. <laughs> There's all kinds of other um, examples. So I do a quiz as part of this presentation yeah. where I have, like, I don't know, say there's a healthcare round and there's like five ways I think I might be able to kill you with the internet in a hospital, but one of them's actually true. 
which one do you think it is? Mm. And it gets people thinking about the way that digital technology can be manipulated to do all kinds of things, stuff that it was built to do, but also stuff that it wasn't built to do. Yeah. And so word got around that we were doing this presentation. We've done it a few times now in different content. Um, and people started sending us um, examples of, ah. of of things that people uh, decided to connect <laughs> to the internet for no other reason than they just had too much time on their hands and they were a bit stupid. And one of them, my favourite one, was a what? So this chap um, had uh, he'd written some code and done some wiring and he got his garage door yeah wirelessly internet enabled so he could do stuff. I mean they come with those anyway, but he decided to build his own. And then on his chat blog. He says, oh, I got bored of that, so I decided that I would do the gas fire instead. Oh, and now, in his flat, I've got photographs and I've got the wiring yeah. and I've got the code that you need to make it all work. He's got a wirelessly enabled gas fire. So if he's on the bus home from work in November and yeah. it looks a bit chilly, he can go on his phone and turn the gas fire on from the bus, hoping that his flat will be nice and warm when he gets home. Now, can anyone see why that's a silly idea? This is why certain demographics live longer. <laughs> <laughs> but then, talking about demographics, you look to the end of the, of, of the chat in mm -hmm. the, it, that he's been having with his mates, showing them this fantastic new wirelessly enabled gas fire that isn't going to kill everyone in the neighbourhood at all. At the end of it, his mate says, oh, that looks like a good idea. I think I'll have a go. Oh, God. <laughs> I think uh, you immediately made me think when you're talking about the Internet of Death. Back in 2008, there was a, a, a cyber attack. It's, it's often referred to as the, the first uh, cyber terrorism attack. And it was where uh, an oil pipeline was was uh, blown up. And um, I remember initially thinking, why would you do that? If you're trying to blow something up, use a bomb, right? Why would you go to all of the effort of, of using a computer? And when you when you start to kind of do that thought experiment of thinking about it, it's like, you don't need, you know, get, getting a computer through customs, through borders, things like that is easier, you know. The, the tools that these criminals are using, it's a lot harder to detect. You know, there's no um, going equipped equivalent to cybercrime, right? There's I no... know, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, having a laptop. Mm. Not suspicious in and no. of itself. Everyone's got them yeah, horrible whereas if you, you know, if you've got a screwdriver in your pocket or a Stanley knife or a <laughs> baseball bat without a ball, yeah. then yeah, going equipped, fine. But yeah, that's an interesting proposition. Also, using uh, laptops to blow stuff up instead of bombs. Actually, you've got to take the bomb there. Oh yeah, getting, getting across the border. And explosives are quite volatile, so you might blow yourself up before you even get there. I'm not an but expert. No, me neither. They don't <laughs> let me go near explosive ordnance anymore. Um, but there's, there was another one in uh, a few years ago in Syria, in the middle of a civil war, cyber terrorism. There, some people got into the network of a water filtration plant completely mm -hmm. remotely. So industrial control systems, air gap SCADA stuff. They got into the network and from wherever they were in the world, which was nowhere near this water filtration plant in Syria because everyone was getting shot and blown up because there was a war on, they manipulated the valves and upped the chemical content of the water mm. so much that it couldn't be drunk. Yeah. And so there's the poor Syrians in the middle of a civil war getting shot and blown up and now they can't even drink the water. I think that, that does point something out as well to do with just kind of more traditional cybercrimes and more day-to-day cybercrimes. Um, there's a lot more things you can do to have an impact on companies than you might expect. The the example there, of course, you don't need to um, damage the treatment centre or release all the water or something like that. It's just adjusting the mix. Mm. And I think people often think of, you know, hacking as, as one extreme or another, but it can just be, like you mentioned, just data theft might be something that they're targeting or, or um, destroying data. I think attackers have got a lot of options, right? 
very much so. And it's they've got a lot of options. They've got a lot of time on their hands to think up these things. I mean, if you think about some of the more innovative cyber criminal methodologies, if those people actually put their mind to something productive, they'd mm. probably be the next Bill Gates. But they're not. They're criminals. They're lazy and they're greedy. They don't want to actually do the work. They just want all the credit and all the money. Oh, it's understandable, isn't it? <laughs> I'm perfectly happy I'm, with my I'm, day job. Thanks. I'm joking for the sake of the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There I end up in the mail on Sunday again. Ex-magistrate turns hacker. <laughs> Not a good look. <laughs> yeah, it's such it's such a, a difference actually to to the professional cyber criminal. Uh, so penetration testers and things like that. People often ask, it's like, oh, why why do you do this kind of job? Why do you, do you hack into systems um, professionally? It's, because it's very technically interesting and it's like the challenge and things like that. And I think some people might think that applies to, to criminals and very often it just doesn't, right? It's just, what's the easiest way that I can exactly. make money and not have to have a real job? Yeah, very much so. And again, the the concept of crime as a service has, has burgeoned in the mm. last five or ten years. Yeah. So the more sophisticated and the more longer-term career cyber criminals now don't have to bother even doing the crimes anymore. They just flog their software to other people. I think that the big thing from crime as a service that that people maybe haven't realised is, um, of course, you, you don't have to be able to do the whole stream from um, stealing the credit cards to selling the credit cards, doing the money laundering and things like that. It's like you can get really good at one thing and mm-hmm. sell that as a service, right? Absolutely. So yeah, I think that's something that uh, a lot of people may not have considered. Is I have absolutely no idea how to launder money, but do you know how to write a good software exploit? Uh huh. And because the internet's huge and there's loads of people in it, and you've got Tor, you can always find someone who's got the specialism you need. Yeah. And then as long as you've got a few bitcoins, they'll just do it for you. <laughs> so what what should these um, small companies? be worried about so we've mentioned vpns which is of course to protect data we never actually said that right uh-huh. it's, it's to protect data in transit yep. we mentioned ransomware what else should companies be worried about that is a good question and that's one of the reasons why we are building a cyber foundry community because we hmm. probably think we know the answer but maybe we don't so if we can build a big enough community of small, medium-sized businesses in Greater Manchester, we can ask them what's happening. There's no better intelligence than getting it from the front line. So rather than we just sit around thinking, oh, yeah, ransomware's in the press, that must be a real big issue for small businesses, go and ask them what's happening because they know what's happening to them on a day-to-day basis. And by building a community like the Cyber Foundry, we get away from the um, reluctance to report things because, A, you don't know what, law enforcement might do when you report the crime Mm -hmm. but b reputational damage is a massive worry so back to hairdressers love hairdressers (laughs) might get some freebies in manchester now because i am a hairdresser (laughs) lover um you might have a hairdressing shop at one end of the street and another one down the Mm -hmm. road and the first hairdressing shop is a victim of a cyber crime of some description suddenly all their customers like oh i'm not going to go there again because um, I'm scared that my mm. data might get lost or my credit card might get stolen. So they all go to the one down the end of the road. So lots more um, considerations, if you like, for small businesses when they are A, subject to crime, B, what do they do when it happens? Do they report it? Do they pay the ransom? Please don't pay the ransom if you're listening. <laughs> um, 
they're the, they're the people who know what criminals are trying to do to them, what um, vulnerabilities are being exploited. So hopefully over the next couple of years, we build up this community of mm. businesses. We'll be able to, on a kind of regular basis, in partnership with Greater Manchester Police, survey them and just say, look, what's going on? What are you worried about? What's actually happening? But do it in such a way that you don't single out individual people because you don't want to make them vulnerable to that reputational risk. So a, a lot of uh, informa- information sharing between businesses then? That, that, yeah, that's I think so. There's, so <clears throat> uh, there's a company called Verizon mm-hmm. and they do a data breach intelligence report, mm-hmm. investigations report every year. And what they've got is, and I think it's been going for 11 years now, and more and more people sign up to report to them. And it's a global thing. So you get like, you know, the Australian Federal Police, the the, the hairdresser down the road. It's a big, big community of people who report yeah. their data breaches to Verizon. And then they write this big, big document. But they have um, an anonymization reporting protocol. So you might, you, the Australian Federal Police might report a load of... Um, mm-hmm data breaches into Verizon. But when it hits the actual published report, they're not attributed to the Australian Federal Police. They're just put into a pot with all the other information. So if we can aggregate intelligence from small, medium businesses around Greater Manchester in that kind of fashion without ripping off the intellectual property of Verizon under (laughs) any circs, but if we can come up with something very similar where we're getting the intelligence from the business community we can then report back to them about the kinds of trends we're seeing, the things they ought to look out for, a bit of remedial advice. Maybe you do need a VPN, maybe you do need a firewall, whatever. But if we can start to get that conversation happening, start to get that um, information sharing um, system up and running, when of course we're going to end up with a much more resilient business community. Mm-hmm. But we've taken out the the threat and the worry about um, business reputation because nobody will know who who said what about who or what. So anonymizing the process means we still get the great intelligence. We can still work that intelligence into some product and feed it back, but we don't have to single out anybody. Even if you publish case studies, you can anonymize those mm. as well and redact yeah. stuff out. But it's information that's really valuable, but it has to come from the business community in order to be fed back. There's no point in us just doing some, you know, blue sky thinking yeah <laughs> that makes a lot of sense well that's that's all of my questions so so thank you very much for coming in is, is there anything else that you wanted to raise that we haven't we haven't covered uh i don't think so other than if any small medium-sized businesses in the greater manchester area are listening do please get in touch and come and talk to us about the cyber foundry we're glad to hear from you awesome well thank you very much for coming in and uh, You're welcome it's been a pleasure Thanks, everybody, for listening. I've got a a call to action for the audience, though. Um, If you're a small and medium business, what's your worry? We've mentioned a few different threats, like um, how how you can protect your data in transit with VPNs and the problem of ransomware and things like that. But um, what what are businesses worried about? Let us know over social media, and we'll see if we can cover some of the topics that that are worrying you guys um, in the next podcast. Thanks. Thank you very much.